Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Welcome to season three of Let's Talk Memoir. I had no idea when I launched this limited series that I was going to continue doing this show and that I would actually be back for a season three. But I love making this podcast and the response is so warm that I can't stop recording episodes. And it is my absolute pleasure to kick off season three with the one and only Abigail Thomas. Abigail Thomas has written four memoirs, Safekeeping, A Three Dog Life, What Comes Next and How to Like It, and most recently, Still Life at 80, The Next Interesting Thing. Abigail Thomas is not only an accomplished memoirist, she's funny, real, honest, insightful, gifted. I'm so happy to bring you Let's Talk Memoir episode 46, featuring Abigail Thomas. Today my guest is Abigail Thomas. Abigail Thomas has four children, 12 grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, eight books, and a high school education. She has written three works of fiction, four memoirs, three children's books, a little book of poems, and a book about writing memoir. Her most recent book is the memoir, Still Life at 80, The Next Interesting Thing. She lives in Woodstock with her two dogs. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. And it really is just, I'm over the moon that I am able to have this time with you. And I also know that my listeners are over the moon, I can assure you. (laughs) Oh, that's Um, awfully nice. Thank you. Yes, yes. So there's so much I would love to ask you, but I suppose I'll begin where I usually begin with my guests and to ask you about your most recent book. Can you share a bit about your newest memoir, Still Life at 80? Yeah, I if I I think I can. <laughs> I was I was pretty pleased to be hitting 80 and pretty snooty about being this old. And I was writing as I usually do. I usually just write whether I've got anything in mind as a book or not. And then the virus struck and everything changed. And I began to write about the things that came into my house when nobody could come into my house. But there were all these tiny little, all the tiny little things I would have ignored had there not been the virus. And that began to feel like more of a, more pages than I usually have of of just stuff I'm writing because I write all the time. And I began to think, well, maybe maybe this is some kind of book about being old and what it's like during the virus to be more interested in an ant than I would have been at any other time. And then the Golden Notebook, which is the bookstore in town, wanted to start a publishing venture. And we decided that I would be their maiden voyage. So that was sort of fun. Then the COVID lockdown ended and I found I was very, very unwilling to leave my house after this year Mm. of being in the house. So it made a sort of, it made a sort of book, you know, here was me loving being old and remembering being young and all the things that strike you and you're thinking about age. And then the middle part was unable to go anywhere. So things that would never have even 
caught my eye became very interesting because they are interesting. Yeah, that's so interesting to me as well, um, to use your word, because I feel like in your previous work, you so much catches your eye. I'm surprised to hear that you felt you were noticing even differently or more. I don't I don't know that I would have noticed or picked up a wasp with one wing if it hadn't been the virus. I would have noticed it and I would have done something careful with it, but I wouldn't have looked at it quite so closely and wondered what it was thinking and wondered whether it was depressed. Well, anyway, I, I'm the ant that was crawling on my bookcase and I wondered, does it miss its hill? <laughs> its ant hill? What is it doing? <laughs> and they've been here for so long. Ants have been on the planet for, I can't even remember now, it's in the book, but I remember. And then I thought, we've been here for 200,000 years, human beings, and look what we've done. Yeah, we've done to the planet. Yeah. There's there was a certain amount of of we are not my favorite animal involved in this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel the same actually, and I, I should mention I have many dogs myself, and um, this it seems to me that the older I get and the older my children get, the more the more painful it is for me to watch animals and those who can't help themselves suffer yeah i know where i live now all of the what used to be or at least not all of it but a lot of what used to be open land has been has been had houses built on it so the deer have very few places mm-hmm. to graze and my yard is one of them and so i see fawns and mothers where they used to have they used to have woods yes. where nobody could i don't know it was it's just we're not, we have not been very good gardeners. We have not been very good caretakers. But mostly it was just what I was, you know, I I write in order to see what the back of my mind is thinking, <laughs> waiting yes. for it to come to the front of my mind. So I just write anyway, but it did it did take a shape when the when the virus was here. Did you have a sense as these pages accumulated and you're noticing and, and COVID went on, did you have a sense at that point that you were potentially writing a new memoir or were you really just kind of exploring how you felt? I was really just writing. I really was. My my best friend, who was also my agent, was very sick at the time mm-hmm. and in fact died Um just a little bit after this book came out. And it was the first thing I ever wrote that he didn't read because he mm. couldn't and didn't say, yes, this is good. No, this isn't good. So I did. I was not sure about any of it because mm. he'd always been my sort of North Star. Mm. And um, without him, I wasn't sure whether anyone, any whether any of this was any good at all. But I was having some fun. It was fun to do. It's so recognizable that as a writer, you would not be sure if you had something there. But at the same time, it's inconceivable to me that after all this work you've put into the world and how much writing has been a practice for you, that you would still be uncertain. Oh, yeah, I was very, I was very uncertain. I was, yeah. Aren't we always, when we start something new, beginners? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm never really sure of what I'm doing Although I do know what I like. I do know when I've written something I like, I know I like it, but I'm not sure that anybody else will. I, but I'm getting better at that now. I'm getting yeah. better at that. 
Yeah, that hunch that, well, I'd like to believe that the hunch I have that something I'm working on has legs or it's interesting, it'll be interesting to more than just me is right. You know, I hope so. And one of my one of my wishes when I was just beginning writing, my children were really small. I didn't start writing creatively until I was, I don't know, 39 or 40. And I remember thinking, won't it be wonderful when I just know or hopefully know that this what I'm working on is good or is worth continuing. That's all I wanted was that's, to know. That's a lot. That's <laughs> I, I, Actually, I am working on something now and I know I like it a lot. It's really fun, but I don't know whether anybody else will, but at the moment I, I, I really don't care. <laughs> so much fun with what I'm doing. And I figured that's what counts really. That's right. What, seeing what you're thinking because I have no idea what I'm thinking unless I start writing or where it might go do you always know where you're going to go when no. You start? no no I so appreciate you asking me that question I mean I think maybe maybe is it possible that one of the differences between a writer who has more years under their belt is that they accept that what they start off with may not end up the same way or that they're just at the the ledge of something and they're about to dive in I, I think I sort of hope that what I'm doing isn't going to wind up where I think it's going to wind up because I like I like the surprises along the way. I like the I like realizing, oh my God, that's not what I'm writing. This is what I really want to write about, but I had to hide it from myself. You know, that's very interesting. <laughs> yes. Also, what's interesting is how much depth there is within us like really after all these books that you've written and all of this this daily or weekly practice of writing that there's still more to plumb that there's still so much more you don't realize you know or you're thinking about well we get older and it changes mm. we get older we get older i don't know um i'm trying to decide what that means i love being i'm now i'm 81 or almost 82 i love being this age and I feel so superior to the <laughs> to those young young men and women who are busy pumping their arms and running all over the place and getting all red in the face to be healthy. And I think have a piece of cake. <laughs> have a drink. <laughs> oh gosh, I can't tell you how many times when I read your book, both um, what comes next and how to like it, and this book that I just wanted to pour another cup of coffee and light a cigarette. Oh, that's what I want to do, too. <laughs> I was like, I wanted to show my husband, see, I'm going to pick this up again. Because I used to I used to occasionally smoke when I would do an, uh, an acting job. And then I stopped. But I was like, why can't I just go to the back porch and light up? I'm going to do it. No. And if I spend, when I do spend time watching YouTube and there's Jimi Hendrix with a cigarette, Dan, <laughs> I so badly want to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> But I haven't for almost a year now. Oh, my gosh. I didn't yeah. realize that. Congratulations. Then I will not light up. I will not light up in solidarity. I know, but you can think about it. <laughs> you know, I I have to tell you, you, you mentioned Chuck a few minutes ago. And, uh, you know, I just want to, I want to take a moment and let you know how clearly he comes across in the pages of um, what comes next and how to like it. And, you know, I, I should also point out that I listened to that on audio and you are a wonderful audiobook narrator. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you. Thank you. 
Yes, and I I enjoyed that very much. Um, I I was on. I wanted to really consume as much of your writing right before our interview as I could, and I realized I could take you on dog walks and I could take you on car rides. And at first, I didn't realize that you were the audio book narrator when I heard the sample. I thought, oh, they must have gotten somebody to read this because it sounds so good. And then it said that it was read by you. And so I just want to shout out that if anyone has not read your book or if they have and they want to listen to you read it, I highly recommend it. That's very nice of you. Thank you. Yes, yes. So I sent you an excerpt from Two Broken Wrists, actually the entire uh, section entitled Two Broken Wrists. And I was wondering if you would like to read it, if you could read it. Sure, sure. I think so. This is called Two Broken Wrists, 2015. I was excited by the new gauzy red curtains, bored stiff by the dreary stuff that had hung in my living room for years. Getting up on the chair to hang them was easy. Getting off was even easier, I fell. It was such a short trip to the floor that I had no time to worry. I heard two tiny distinct snaps as I landed, the sound of wrist bones breaking. It hurt like hell. I lay my hand on a pillow and carried it as carefully as a tray full of brimming martinis. I called Chuck and he drove me to the emergency room. My cast, the pain, the inability to perform any daily tasks were all humbling. I couldn't hold a cup of coffee. Still, it was a brand new experience and new experiences were hard to come by. I was 74 that year and I was oddly grateful. But without my right hand, I also couldn't think. Thoughts made a beeline down my right arm to the hand I wrote with, and that was now a dead end. I imagined the inside of my head as an infirmary. My thoughts were pale and thin. They lay in rows of little cots fingering the bedclothes. Some were coughing. No thought spoke to any other, so I had nothing to write down, even if I could have. Then two weeks after my cast came off, my other wrist broke. Chuck and I were waiting in line for a movie. I leaned against a bookstore door, which opened unexpectedly, and I fell. I knew instantly the other wrist was broken. The next morning, I called my friend Paul, who drove me for the x-rays, which showed two bones broken, and I received another cast. I'm more fragile than I give myself credit for. I keep forgetting. When I got home, I found a bird in my bedroom a bird the size of a tiny teacup fluttering about. Its presence was almost more alarming than the fact that I had broken both wrists inside of a month, something I found almost funny. I had no idea how it got in, but one of my bedroom doors opens on the yard. I got it unlocked and then closed the other door, which leads to the rest of my house. I peeked in after a few minutes, and the little thing was standing on the edge of my bed, two feet from freedom. I tiptoed away, made a cup of coffee, which I could now hold. And when I returned, the bird was gone. I had never felt quite that mortal, but it's a beautiful word, mortal, rhyming with portal, which sounds optimistic. And really, who wants to live forever? How tedious life would become. Mortality keeps life interesting. And right now, right this minute, At 79, that's all I ask. Thank you. Do you feel that age has changed your writing? Well, it certainly changed me. 
Um, there are things I used to care about that I that I don't give a shit about anymore. Um, I can't. I don't know. I think I'd have to be somebody else to, to read that, yeah. stuff and see whether it was different. I don't really know. It doesn't feel different. The writing doesn't feel different. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel different because mm -hmm. I think when you get older, a lot of the things that mattered to you or you were embarrassed by or not embarrassed by, that all just, it's like flinging things out of a car on a road trip. You just <laughs> them in the road behind you. I don't know is the answer. To me, when I read your memoirs, I... I feel so clearly, and this is from my view as a reader, that you were born to write and that you are the embodiment of a writer, that that you were meant to do this. And when you think about your body of work and how your various books came to be, can you reflect on both how much you felt called to write and also what role ambition may have played in your career? I don't think ambition played any role in my career, but... The first books I wrote, I was in my late 40s before I dared write words that went all the way across the page. Mm -hmm. I'd written poems before that. Mm -hmm. But I thought you had to know something. I thought you had to know something important. I mm -hmm. thought you had to, also, I thought you had to know what you were doing. And then one day somebody told me a story that reminded me very much of myself. And I started to write it. And instead of looking at what I'd written and crumpling it up and throwing it out and saying, who do you think you are? I thought, okay, um, all right, I, I think I'll do it from a different angle because the story was more important than my ego. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, an ego gets in the way. I think a lot of people could be, could be writers if they, didn't, if they didn't mind writing badly before they wrote well. But mm -hmm. their ego is just can't bear it. So I wrote it until it worked for me. And then it got published in the Columbia Journal of Poetry and Prose. So then I was off and writing. And I was mm -hmm. I was really at it. And the first three books, which are fiction, were all were drawn so completely from life as I think most of us mm -hmm. most of us use it. I mean, might as well. When I wrote Safekeeping, I wrote my, after the death of my second husband. Mm -hmm. I began writing all these pieces, and I didn't know what they were. I had no idea what I was doing. But they kept coming, all these little pieces. And and um, after a while, I had quite a few of them. I began to think, maybe, maybe I'm really writing something. And... Chuck thought maybe I was really writing something. And I had thought it would end when my friend died. Mm. I'd known him most of, you know, my sort of conscious life. And then I realized, but I'm not dead. There was more to do. Mm. And I think the hardest part about writing that book was putting it together because it was just a million pieces in first person and third person, mm. second person. And there was no such thing as I do not like the words narrative arc hmm. or any of those words about writing. Anyway. Mm, no, no. I love, I love to talk about that as well, because there's so many ways to approach a, a memoir, a book of nonfiction, 
a book of essays, nonlinear, linear, all those things. Mm. And I've learned a lot in interviewing people how, and reading so many memoirs now, how effective work that is, that doesn't have a narrative arc can be. Yeah, well, everybody turned it down but Knopf, and that was in 2000, and it's still in print. <laughs> and then the second book, our second memoir, was when my husband had a traumatic brain injury, and that I wrote as it was happening. I mean, all four memoirs have been written so differently. The mm. first was just scattered like popcorn. I didn't know what I was doing. And the second was writing down what was happening to him and to me and our marriage and what what the changes were because if i hadn't written it i would have gone crazy because it was a it was really terrible and it was one of those things that has no meaning a terrible accident and a man loses himself mm. with a brain injury it has no meaning unless you make it give it a meaning and mm. writing did that for me and then the third one chuck asked me to write he wanted me to write about our relationship and the hole that had been blown through it. Mm -hmm. And I'd never done anything like that before. And I did a whole lot of writing, but I couldn't figure out how to start it. I did a lot of the work, but I couldn't find the beginning. So I thought, all right, maybe I should just write about, I can't goddamn find the fucking beginning of this. Where how, how am I going to do this? What is and so I decided to write what I was doing instead of writing. And mm -hmm. I was painting. And I, whenever somebody's stuck, I tell them to write about how come they can't write about it, what you're doing instead of what you should be doing. And then I wrote that, and then it just walked right into the rest of the book. It was mm -hmm. very interesting. When I love that. I love that idea. Yeah, sometimes you just have to call it out. What yes. is happening? Yes, you just have to you just have to stare the bull while holding its horns and tell <laughs> it where to go. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Thank you, Kara, for being a Let's Talk Memoir partner. I don't know about you, but my cabinet kind of has a lot of jars of supplements in it, and so many of them I never open or use or remember to take. I can't tell you how many times I've seen my husband rifling through the kitchen shelves, searching for bottles that haven't expired, or asking me if I'm ever going to take said supplement again. Enter Care Of. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high quality, personalized vitamin supplements and powders to your door every month. And one of the really fun parts is you get to go to their website, which is beautiful, by the way, and personalize what you need based on your concerns. There's a quiz that helps guide your supplement selections, and you can retake it as your needs change. I shift my packets around a bit, but I always include ashwagandha, the chill pill, B-complex for stress, always need that, always have needed that, and the probiotic, which is good for digestion and immunity. So while I like the quiz a lot, I think I like the packets even more. These packets are made with plant-based compostable film to help limit the impact on the environment without compromising the quality and safety of their products. And you can just throw one in your bag or your suitcase so that when you're traveling, you can remember to take your supplements and also you don't have to measure and count pills into travel cases or pack cumbersome bottles with you, which I seriously used to do. 
Right now, you can get 50% off your first Care Of order by going to careof.com and entering the code MEMOIR50. So if you want to try Care Of and you want 50% off of your first order, go to careof.com and enter code MEMOIR50. Thank you, Care Of, for being a Let's Talk Memoir partner. I'm so glad you wrote that book about your relationship and the hole that was blown through it because that was just, ooh, that was unbelievable, that that story that you wrote in um, What Comes Next and How to Like It. Thank you. Yeah, he wanted me to write it and I couldn't quite believe it. So close and intimate to have, you know, to have your daughter and him so much the book. Yeah, and then my daughter's terrible cancer. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And he was the one, he had a wonderful way of comforting. I don't, I mean, when I was so upset that the cancer was doing what the cancer was doing, and he said, but that's what this cancer is, Abby. That's what it does. And somehow, although it it didn't make it better, it was comforting. Hmm. This is the definition of the cancer she has. What is happening now? That's not a mystery. That's mm-hmm. what's happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's expected in a way. It's expected yeah. of this cancer, right? Yes. And that, so that part of it, it was no longer a mystery. I don't know. It was, it was great. He really was. He was a good friend. And I realized that a good friend who knows you as well as, I mean, I don't think anybody has ever known me as well as Chuck. Mm-hmm. Or I, well, maybe that's not true of Chuck, but I knew him pretty well. And there's something about just knowing that someone knows you that well, that you feel taken care of, mm-hmm. even if you're not talking to them. Mm-hmm. It's as though his arm is around your shoulder all the time and your arm is around his. And yeah, not everyone had... has that. You know, it seems like he saw you. You really, you're describing to me what I've learned a lot in, in excavating my past and just, you know, therapy and stuff is being seen. Yeah, yes. What any and from the very beginning, we both, we both did. It was interesting. I could ask anything, and he had the right answer for me, not for everybody, but he had the perfect answer. Because I remember, I remember feeling irritated by forgiveness, and I can't remember why. I said, "Why does why does forgiveness irritate me so much?" And he said, because it's the perfect example of passive aggression. That's what it is. And it wasn't the perfect answer for everybody, but it was the perfect answer for me. That was why it irritated me. It wasn't <laughs> that that was necessarily what forgiveness was, but it was what was irritating me about it. Mm. Boy, do I miss him. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Well, a lot of us loved him. A lot of us loved him. But we, you know, I think, the fact that we met when I was doing slush mm-hmm. in biking and I was teaching him how to do slush, that's a very good way to get to know somebody. Mm-hmm. Your sense of humor, your what you find ridiculous. It's, you know, it it was a nice way to start. Oh, well. You anyway. Know, you mentioned that um, Knopf was the one publisher who wanted your book and what I what I feel in reading your work is the freedom to to call a paragraph or two 
complete in a chapter or a section. I love the idea that that can stand on its own. And I'm wondering if you can recall, aside from the actual on paper, Knopf is the one that took you and the others didn't want you. Do you remember what the reception to your work was like before you were established? Was there any kind of thing you heard a lot for about your style? Well, the fiction worked all right. The fiction was the fiction worked all right. Although one review of of the third book of stories, Herb's Pajamas, was um, a less commercial book cannot be imagined. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, code, coded language, yeah. But I did have, you know, there were pieces from Safekeeping that got published in little magazines, but it wasn't, it wasn't holding itself together as a book that got published. I don't know. It wasn't finished either. And Robin Desser, who was the editor who took a chance on it, just asked me questions that I could immediately answer. So if something didn't feel quite finished to her, she'd ask me a question about it and I would know exactly the answer. And so it became more of a, you know, it was about a hundred pages when we sent it to her. And I forget how many pages it is now, but she she was a brilliant editor. She mm. knew what to ask, not what to tell, but what to ask. Mm. I knew the answers to every question. She just, she just, it was as though she had sandpapered fingertips and she read it with those and mm. know, knew where the, where the lock was and the, what to unlock and what to ask, like mm. a safe cracker. Mm-hmm. She was great. She was really great. I was very lucky. And I love that everybody turned it down and it's still in print after 23 years and it gets taught in in um, MFA programs. Yes, and lots of my guests uh, have mentioned it as a, a memoir that they found really helpful. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's still so important. Um, when you teach, I know that you teach, uh, you know, memoir writing and workshops. Can you boil down a craft issue that often comes up for the writers you work with? Is there something that comes up again and again or something that as a teacher you have seen a lot of that you can share about? Too many words. Mm. Um, I think with memoir, um, I don't know about that. I know that my definition of memoir and the way I write is to distill a moment, not to decorate it. You're not you're not adding something to um, to something you remember. You're distilling. You're mm-hmm. distilling it. So whatever is extra, I mean, being me, whatever is extra, I I don't need. So, and people do tend to put a little more in than needs to be there. Um, and also, you have to write the hard stuff if you're if you're avoiding the writing of something and it's clear that something is hiding behind the sofa in that paragraph you have to look behind the sofa oh you'll say someone will say oh i didn't think i needed to write that oh no yes you do mm-hmm. you, you need to go in the basement and look at what's down there and because that's where all your strength's going to come from mm-hmm. the more vulnerable you are the stronger the stronger you become and people people appreciate that mm-hmm. if you write about your vulnerability and your 
things that cause you shame, it helps other people, which is not why you do it, but it's a nice byproduct. And it is interesting. I feel like readers, especially teachers and editors, you really can sense when there is something lurking there or something that the writer is not addressing. Exactly. And you have to. I mean, the point of memoir is not to sidle past the things that you don't want to write. The point of memoirs is honesty and telling the truth as best you can and not leaving things out because they make you uncomfortable. You can leave things out because they might make somebody else uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't write other people's foibles unless you unless you do it in fiction. You just reveal yourself, that's all. Mm. It's, hard. it's hard at first. But basically that's what memoir is. It's 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 memory, which is sometimes faulty, which is also very interesting. Mm-hmm. But you remember I have a sister who remembers everything, every bite of every sandwich, every piece of pie that I had that was bigger than earth. Um, and it's very interesting when we compare notes about a place we both lived and loved and everything she remembers better than I do, it goes into her pile. <laughs> As if I never lived there. It's very yeah, I always feel like if you want to know how faulty memory is, just have, you know, ask your sibling because you both, I mean, it's faulty and it's also not faulty. We just remember the things that stick with us, right? Well, and we remember things differently because we had different parents. Yes. I mean, every one of us has had a different parent. First, so third, fourth kids, you know. What, what is, where are you in the birth order, by the way? I'm the eldest. Ah, okay. I'm the bossy one. I, me too. I always feel like the, I know that the youngest have their own issues, but I feel like the oldest were the guinea pigs of the family for sure. We were. We're the fallen, the fallen souffle. <laughs> and then they got better. And then finally they didn't care if the souffle fell at all. So, uh, yeah. Yes. I'm going to have to tell my parents that whenever I'll just say, like, I know whenever I'm getting a, a little bit of a, an attitude from them. I'll just say, I'll, I know that I'm the fallen souffle. I got it. <laughs> but it's their fault. They did it wrong. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are, how many people are in your family? I just have one younger sister, but I did the kind of caretaking role when my mom left. And so I was very much relied upon to be bossy and take care of it all. Um, and then I now get made fun of. Yes, I get made fun of for that now. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I'm a very, I, my sister once called me, we were late for the airport and I was just, we were young in our 20s and I was really irritated with her for making us late to go on this trip with our family. And I just kept on talking and talking in my type A way. And she said, all right, C-3PO. And I just <laughs> shut right up and I knew exactly how she saw me. And I realized. Oh, how I that's cry. so there. You took <laughs> care of her. She should be grateful. <laughs> right? See, you get it. Yeah, um, I'm really glad we had this conversation. If for nothing else <laughs> that, I really appreciate the uh, encouragement and affirmation. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you something because I love talking about revision and I want to ask you because I'm always looking, I want to know what the magic sauce is. And I know it's not that easy. I know there's no magic wand that's going to, you know, transform everything once I hear it, but I do love a good quote and I love to know, you know, what's, what's in the works there. So 
when you can you share maybe a typical if there is such a thing a typical timeline or process for writing and editing something that becomes a chapter in a book like how often this is my real question how often does a piece of writing that you do come into the world and stay mostly intact often actually because i've gotten into the habit of writing of paring it down in my mind before i put it on the page oh. the, the, when I when I'm done with something and it, and you know I write really short stuff, so I read it out loud to myself, and if my voice goes dead, which it will, then there's something wrong. Either there's something hiding oh. behind those sentences, or it's just plain boring. And oh. if if the problem with it is that it's boring and there's too much. I'm very good at revision, but if there's something wrong with it, meaning I need to add something and I don't know what it is, that can take me months ah. to figure out what it is that's missing. And it's mm. the most frustrating thing in the world. I'm I'm really good at, at I'm really good at editing because for me the rhythm of of what you're writ what you've written is almost more important than the words. So if the rhythm falters mm -hmm. or your voice goes dead in a sentence or two, you know something's wrong. Mm. And either, yeah. either you have to find out what it is that you're not writing. Um, and that's the, the, the adding something is the hardest part for me because I'm, I'm, I'm real good at cutting it short but you would stick with it in this case for example because you know that there's a resonance there or there's something yeah. addling you you know oh, you need to get back yes and, and and it will take me weeks to do it to get mm -hmm. it right and i do it and then i do nothing but that mm. i sit in this chair and i look at it and i try it this way and i add this that way and we really truly weeks will go by before i find it and then it's like just nothing, but it's, huh. it's what was missing. And it might be, it might be an element of the story, or it might just be something that changes the rhythm to the right way, the rhythm of the words of the whole paragraph. It's really frustrating when you, when you can't remember or can't figure out what it is that's missing in this, in this particular paragraph. Because that's how I go. I go by paragraphs. I mean, I think that your tenacity is part of what makes you who you are. You're, as a writer, that you you don't let it go. Oh, no, I have to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely have to do it. Yeah. Sleep, you know, I can't. <laughs> it, you know, it's just, it's a puzzle and I have to solve it. So then if you do write something and it lands on the page and it's pretty pared down and you feel pretty good writing it and getting it on the page, do you have moments as a writer where you're like, ah, I yes. did it. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yeah, that's such oh, a good dude. feeling, huh? Hey, oh boy, is it a good feeling? Yeah, it is. <laughs> So you've reached so many readers and writers with your memoirs and you've taught so many memoirists. Do you have a suggestion for what writers of memoir should keep in mind as they write their stories? Um, well, yeah, write as honestly as you can. If there's something that 
is important that you did that you are ashamed of. You have to write it because otherwise, I mean, who are you fooling? <laughs> Yourself? No. That's all. And just, yeah. and just, you know, you have to keep your sense of humor and stay curious and then you'll be fine. You, if, if, if you start something and you think it's going, I think if you are starting a memoir and you know where you, where you want it to end and that's where it ends, I think you've done something wrong because somewhere in there, you're going to surprise yourself and then the ending will change. It mm -hmm. just, it, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, make, make, don't boss it around. Let, let the surprises show up, you know? Oh gosh, I didn't think I was going to do this. I didn't think that was what I was writing about. Oh fuck. Well, you do it, write it, see what happens. It's exciting. It's an adventure. And you learn something you didn't know you knew. And if you're, if you're stuck somewhere, change the voice from first person to third person, because the third person always knows more than the first. Write it in the third person. See what you found out by doing it that way. And then you can transfer what that person knows to the first person if you want to. But the third person is, is very useful for for distance when you need it. Mm -hmm. And you can do it. There's no such thing. You can do anything that works. You can do anything that works on the page. There are no rules that are hard and fast, except you can't make anything up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can want to, and you can <laughs> say, this is what I'd like to write. I'd like to make this part up, but I can't, you know? Yeah, that once again, I love I love that because it's sort of that permission to call out what's really going on for you as a writer. So are there books that you would love to shout out or that you feel have been especially interesting or helpful to you as a writer that you could recommend? I loved Autobiography of a Face. Ah, by yes. really. mm -hmm. That was really that was a that was a naked book. Mm -hmm. She was so she was so honest about everything. And I loved Lucy anyway. Mm. Um, yes, of course, there are none of which come to mind at the moment. <laughs> I, loved, I loved my family and other animals. Gerald Durrell's Isle of Corfu when he was young. Well, autobiography of a face is something everybody should read. Yes. Well, this, this has just been... This has just been wonderful as a host of a podcast, as a writer, and also just as a, a woman who admires you. I appreciate having this time to talk with you. And I hate this expression, but it's so true. Pick your brain a little bit. And <laughs> thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. I'm so pleased that you asked me. I'm, I'm very flattered. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok.
If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.